0: Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future.
1: Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Rob Rosenthal, a former Goldman Sachs investment banker who is now CEO of Revolution Populi, a blockchain-enabled database whose mission is to restore the ownership of data to the people who created it, namely citizens and consumers. Rob, thanks for joining us.
0: Great to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Now, Rob, the, the clue to your intent at Revolution Popular is clearly in the name of the organization. What does returning data sovereignty to the people mean? And I'm asking that question in two senses, really. One is philosophical. One is practical.
0: Great question. So why don't we start with what the Internet was designed to do and what it was not designed to do? OK, um, it was designed for traffic. It was designed for traffic of data and information. And that's it. I'm old enough to remember the phrase information superhighway. But there was no similarly decentralized database to capture the data that went across it. So a couple of clever people came along and figured out a way to essentially get us all to hand them over our data, right? It was a bit of a head fake, but that's what they did. And they captured it in their databases they package it and they sell it. And along with that, <clears throat> unfortunately, uh, they also happen to have a dossier or get a dossier in each and every person that actually uses their services and get to control information dissemination for pretty much the entire world. So this we saw as a bit of a problem, right? Uh, a problem societally and and, a, and just, a, just in general, a problem that, that was ripe for disruption and should be disrupted. Um, the question was how to do it, and, you know, we kind of determined that the solution was available, and that is through a decentralized and universally distributed database with user control, and the technology was available in the form of, of blockchain. So philosophically, we thought it was essential for somebody to try and do it, and practically, we saw it as achievable, so we're doing it.
1: Now, you've also described data as the biggest natural resource since oil, uh, which kind of explains why large corporations of the type you've just described are very eager to control it. How exactly are consumers going to wrest control from the likes of Facebook, Google,
0: and Microsoft? Well, first of all, they need a choice, or, or rather many choices, to be honest with you. You know, if all we know are these giant companies that take our data, package it, sell it and control all public discourse across the world and there's no alternative, then that's all we know, right? However, if you give people an alternative, if you build the technology to do that, uh, we're pretty confident that they'll, they'll choose, at least they'll have an opportunity to choose another path, okay? Um, which by the way, is the kind of basis for uh, what we're, we're calling, and it's a pet name, it's not a, an official name, but what we're calling the Facebook Killer Kit, okay? So right now, you know, we, we we're designing and, and are certainly looking to implement uh, an open source uh, SDK, which is a software development kit um, that would be compatible with the blockchain that you know we're shepherding into development, uh, which would allow any developer the world over to mix and match different features um, of a social net, and uh, and all of the underlying val- uh, uh, data would be portable between them. So. If you have a, a, if you develop a social net, an extra neighbor develops a social net and I'm a user. And, you know, let's say I try yours and I try theirs and I don't like what you're doing. I just port the data that I've put on yours over to theirs. And so it's sort of like a death by a thousand paper cuts, so to speak, rather than just saying, oh, you know, we're going to create this new social net and it's going to have this amazing new feature. And we're just going to displace Facebook. Because the problem with that is that if you are even successful, which is hard enough, um, you kind of become the new power, right? And absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if you if you develop a core database, a very simple, elegant core database that is universally distributed and decentralized with user controls, you know, we really honestly see that as a silver bullet.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm interested in the the pragmatic approach you're you're taking the, the death by a thousand cuts as it were but uh, i wonder if offering a choice is going to be enough the the usual way of dealing with a monopoly or an, an oligopoly is of course antitrust uh, but if you look back historically, that has a pretty mixed record and trusts seem to have a, an, an amazing ability to resurrect themselves. So what makes you confident that the offering this choice and offering commercial incentives to use it and allowing competition to take place between what's there and what you're proposing, what makes you confident that that will be enough to do the job?
0: Well, I think that, okay, so first of all, I, I, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, antitrust has has a bit of a mixed record. And if you think about it, it's almost always, if not always, you know, free market um, commercial incentives that do disrupt and do displace. Um, now, often enough, or not often enough, but sometimes they are actually bumped forward as a result of, of you know, certain government actions to you know, limit uh, some of the potential rapacious behavior of, of, of companies. So you know, clearly there's, there's a place for, for antitrust, but it really always is going to come down to you know, freedom of choice and and the ability for new entrants to come in, and the ability for people to actually design and take the risk and develop and put forward the money and the time and the effort in their lives toward doing something new and different that will be disruptive, right? And the technology is is available for such a thing. So I, I think the free market can and ultimately will do it. You know, and again, what antitrust really is about is to just allow for more competition. People still have to step in and do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, so, and so if the technology is available for such a thing, uh, which is blockchain technology, um, then you know, I'm pretty confident that, that, that it's going to get done. Now, this technology is, is really, really pretty stunning of an advancement. You know, blockchain technology can pretty much take any of the middleware services that allow for the entire internet economy to exist and decentralize them. Whether it's a database or you know storage or servers or secure transmissions or any of it, it's a pretty amazing thing. And through cryptocurrency, it actually can be self-maintained and self-sustained. That's really that construct, okay, is really really revolutionary. And so if it's if it's applied in a in in a way that is for and of the public interest, it can have a powerful effect, and that can actually be a solution for the whole problem. We are absolutely confident that it can be.
1: Mm-hmm. So antitrust can help, but you're really relying on a mixture of technology and cryptocurrency to lower the, the barriers to entry, as it were. Can you be more specific about exactly what obstacles, what barriers to entry need to be cleared, and indeed what new structures you need to build before this vision, which is a very clear vision, can be realized?
0: Sure. Well, I mean, right now, because it's it's still a fairly nascent technology, in if fairly nascent kind of global structure, um, it, it's the barriers to entry pretty low, well, which is fantastic. Now, it also barriers, low barriers to entry from a regulatory standpoint is sometimes not good, okay? But in this circumstance right now, I think it, it, it kind of is, right? Um, there's the core blockchain, which we believe will be pioneering uh, because it's meant for practical use, okay? This is not a sort of cult of personality project. This is meant for practical use, right? Uh, And it's being put in place for the public interest. Uh, And of course, certain services are going to have to be built on top of it and be compatible with it. But we're working, you know, working hard on that right now. And as far as obstacles, you know, it's, it's the type of thing where you can't look six months or 10 months or a year down the road and say, what are our obstacles going to be? You have to sort of wake up in the morning and say, what are my obstacles today? And as I'm doing this interview right now, today, there really aren't that many obstacles, right? I mean, it's just a matter of just getting the work done. And then and then seeing what happens. Now, the only real obstacle might be whether or not people avail themselves of the choices that we provide.
1: Now, one choice all of us could make, of course, is to, is to buy the, the, the token that you've issued, RVP Revolution Populi. We can all buy it through through Uniswap. I had a look yesterday. It's, it's the market cap is $21 million. Um, so what 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 have you what would you advise people to do in relation to your token? Should we all be out there rushing and buying it? I don't know whether you're allowed to say that, but what do you? What have you achieved so far in terms of the money which you which you have raised? What have you been spending it on?
0: Yeah, I mean, so just to answer the first part of the question, our job is just to develop technology. It's going to be up to folks to either buy or not buy the token. That, that's that's sort of that has that that's orthogonal to what we're doing. To be candid, right? Um, mm-hmm. But you know, we we have obviously distributed um, a, a token or we've released it. Um, which, and the, and the reason why is, and it's, this is very important, is that there we believed and do believe that there needs to be a healthy distribution of the token before mainnet. Okay, that's the way the construct works. right? So that's the objective. The RVP token that's uh, in the market today is sort of a placeholder token. Okay? The real mainnet token will be the real token. But before you actually get into mainnet, you have to have some you know, distribution of the token because we're operating on what's called a, a version of the delegated proof of stake uh, algorithm, which requires distribution and voting, okay? So th- that's effectively why we uh, put the, uh, the token into market, you know, now. Um, but for right now, you know, we're in test net uh, and we continue to advance the development. Um, one of our recent releases, for instance, um, you know, is that users now have the ability to vote, become the nodes that ultimately operate the, ultimately operate the blockchain. That's in testnet, uh, and we also have the. We've also implemented uh, the ability for people to establish accounts, their own accounts on the blockchain, and you know make transfers. And all of the technology so far is operating quite well. It's stable and it's operating as as intended.
1: And we can all join the revolution uh, through the token. Now, your your vision is is nothing if not ambitious to kind of overturn the. The, the Facebook uh, uh, plus others oligopoly uh, raises some very obvious questions about the speed and the scalability of, of blockchain technology. Have you solved those problems?
0: Sort of. <laughs> yes, kind of. Um, and, and here's the reason why well, okay, solved the problems. We have, we have certainly understood from the jump that this was going to be something that we needed to pay attention to, right, which is scalability. Um, and so we've been extraordinarily disciplined to make sure that it is just a database with user controls. That's it, right? It's not meant to be a new internet. It's not meant to be you know, a new decentralized operating system or a new server network. And as a result, there's nothing really clogging the pipes. Okay, and so therefore it should operate fast. And and, and so far based upon the, you know, the uh, initial tests that we've done, it, it does. Uh, again, preliminary tests, early tests, more wood to chop, all that other good stuff, but it's essentially showing that it can operate at uh, over 100,000 transactions per second. Now that sounds like a lot and it sounds very fast and and it is. But again, it's not meant to be a new internet, okay? It's a database, so it ought to perform fast a- a- and it does. And the objective there is to build a foundation, okay, a database foundation on top of which, other services can, can be used, right? And any developer, because it's going to be an open system, will be free to use whatever technology stack they want to use in order to, you know, to, to, to launch their services or their products. So for instance, if pardon me, if you want to use a centralized service like AWS, EC2 for your servers, you can. If you want to use the internet computer, which is a decentralized you know, service, you ought to be able to. Right. If for if for storage you want to use S3, you can use S3. If you want to use IPFS, you can use IPFS. And right now we're designing a universal gateway to allow that very thing, right? To allow sort of a new, a new foundation for hopefully a new internet economy, right? And so yeah, so it it's it, we we have thought about that from the get go about about scalability, and uh, and you know we believe that uh, we believe we've got a foundation for for a very highly scalable. Um, you know, kind of new economic foundation.
1: Now, one of the things I find interesting about your model, and I find this interesting about a lot of uh, DeFi products and services, is it does provide this structural alternative to the centralized, hierarchically organized, uh, limited liability joint stock company, the the corporations, which like Facebook, which kind of dominate our economic life today. And I'm old enough to remember the publication of Michael Jensen's uh, famous article, Uh, predicting the eclipse of the corporation he was of course talking about um, companies going private and to some extent that has happened lots of companies have have delisted what you're describing and what DeFi is mapping out for us in general is something much more uh, revolutionary a a whole new type of organization which is much more democratic uh, than the traditional limited liability joint stock company Um, do you think that we are in the early stages actually of a complete revolution in the types of organizations through which we work and through which we buy products and services?
0: It's a great question, and the only honest answer I can give is kind of no. <laughs> and the re- and the reason why is, you know, look, I, I mean, I, I, think, I think there's always going to be private enterprise, right? I, I believe Michael Jensen was suggesting that there was going to be this kind of, you know, generally speaking, public corporations that Operate publicly, and that there's going to be a series of sort of private contracts. Well, who are the private contracts going to be with? They're going to be with companies, right? And so I don't know. I I think that so long as there's going to be the rule of law, and let's hope that there always will be, and so long as there's going to be free market capitalism, I think that there should be limited, some form of limited liability companies for people who are willing to take risks. Now, joint stock and all that other stuff and the structures, you know, some of that might certainly, I think. I think will likely uh, change around around the edges. But for all intents and purposes, you know, laws and structures that limit the liability of people willing to take risks aren't really the issue, in my view. OK, uh, we want more people to become entrepreneurs. We want more people to have you know, control over their own destinies. And, and, and we want to lower the barriers so, so that we can allow people to do that. And we want to have laws that, that, that protect them you know, for, for the risks that they take. Um, th- this technology, I think, is, okay, this technology is, is in my view, a, a, a different kind of um, creative destruction, okay? But if you think about it, all creative destructions have been a different kind of creative destruction. That's the whole point of, of you know, creative, the creative side of it. So, but I, I, think, I think that the technology is going to Really change the way that we operate within the internet economy for sure. Do I think that you know decentralized autonomous organizations are going to change the legal structure of a bakery? No, um, but do I think that it's going to be that that they have got a really powerful and new and different place? You know, when it comes to you know the, the software technology that interconnects you know the, a data economy, absolutely. And, and do I think that that's going to have a profound impact on you know? on the world and 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 the economies of the world, yes I do, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now to go back
1: to to the revolution side of, of revolution populi, the revolutions we always think of, like the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, were led by these small groups of fanatics. They they knew what was best for, for the vast mass of people and they kind of imposed it on them. Mm-hmm. The revolution you've described clearly entails mass participation you know, from, from quite an early stage. Now, what makes you confident? And I have this conversation quite a lot of the time with people who say, well, the masses will never get involved because they like free email and they like free uh, social media platforms uh, and they're happy to give up their, their privacy for that. What makes you confident that actually you can get the masses to recognize that the loss of uh, data control and data privacy is sufficiently alarming for them want to give up free email and free
0: social networks? Well, let me answer the question a little bit differently. I, I, it's not our job to, to get people to do something. You know, our, our job is to give people the tools, okay? And from there, it's up to them. That, that, that's, that's, the way, that's the way real revolutions take hold, like the American Revolution. Give people the tools, give people the option, give people, people the choice, and then they either avail themselves of it or they do not. Um, but without the tools, we're all lost and we're all subservient. So it starts with the tools and that's our job. That's what we're here to try and do, right? Uh, Everything else is gonna be up to the people. It just will be. It has to be, otherwise it's just not going to work. So what makes me confident that people will do it is because it's kind of a no-brainer. If you give them the tools or if you provide the foundation for the tools, I believe people will build on, on that foundation. And if people build on that foundation, and then you, know, you give people an option to say, hey, would you like to control the information that, that, that belongs to you? Would you like to have control over your own property? Would you like to be able to monetize it or determine personally who gets to get paid by it if you, if you choose? Or do you wanna just continue to do things the way that you've been doing? It? And if you give people a choice between, you know, I guess, freedom and captivity, <laughs> <laughs> I believe just generally the human condition will will choose freedom, but you got to give them a choice. Mm-hmm.
1: So if we give people a choice and we give them the tools, how difficult is it going to be for them in your model to exercise that choice and, and use their tools? And, and let me be specific about this. Sure. Will we need a new type of, of intermediary, somebody who's going to provide a service to, to consumers to enable them to Uh, control their data to own their data and to decide who gets to use it and decide how they if and when and by what means they get paid for the use of their data and indeed their data being used to fulfill transactions whether it's getting a passport or 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 getting their supermarket shopping do you need a new type of intermediary to work with because it seems to be impossible that all consumers are going to want to do this themselves uh, will they want to buy services from some type of intermediary to do it for them?
0: Yeah, that, that's an outstanding question. The answer is absolutely, what we certainly believe there will be. Again, the whole point of the core of data sovereignty, this core, the simple, elegant idea of a distributed and universally, universally distributed and decentralized database, is that it's the core. It's a core upon which other things can be built but you need to provide people with the core, okay? But clearly, if you provide an open framework for entrepreneurs to come in and there is a demand, somebody's gonna meet the supply, right? If you've got, if you've, or somebody's going to match the supply with the demand, that's a classic broker model, okay? If there is supply and there is demand, somebody's gonna come, come, come in and hopefully more than one, hopefully more than many, right? Uh, that say, okay, we're gonna match, Somebody who's got data that wants to sell it to people who want to buy it, and we're going to take a vig. Okay, that—that's classic broker mar- market model. That's classic market making model. And yeah, I mean, I think that there's all there's going to be all sorts of opportunities for those kinds of intermediaries. Let's call them data markets. Okay, uh, to to come to be within this hopefully new economy uh, that's based upon you know data sovereignty. Um, it's a great question, though, and I think it cuts to the notion that, again, what we're building is a core upon which other things can be built, right? And that will, and, and the sort of North Star is data sovereignty about that core.
1: Something else we're very keen on at, uh, at Future of Finance is, is digital identities. And we're greatly puzzled that something which, on the face of it, uh, should be able to save existing financial institutions uh tens of billions uh, of dollars in running know your, know your Customer, anti-money laundering, counting the financing of terrorism, sanctions, screening checks. Yep. They're all throwing people and money at, at these problems and duplicating yep. work. But we're very puzzled that digital identities don't seem to be getting traction. Why, why do you think that is Is question one? And question two is, uh, are they a, a central part of your own vision of the future? Of data also sovereignty?
0: Fantastic, also fantastic question. The answer to the second part is yes. Um, uh, undeniably, yes. Uh, first part. So, well, again, there's no decentralized database for it. Okay. What we're building, right? (laughs) There's no decentralized, universally distributed decentralized, uh, database with user controls. That's why, um, you know, look, if everyone had their own account on a blockchain, their own sort of mini blockchain, so to speak, which is exactly what you know, the design that, that, we're, that we're, we're building toward. Um, and they alone have the keys, okay? Then why not be able to provide your sensitive personal information just once on the blockchain? There's absolutely no reason why that can't be done. Right now, okay, let's say right now you've got a bank account, uh, a traditional brokerage account. And you're interested in buying and selling cryptocurrency. So you've, you know, you've signed up for three exchanges because you kind of have to sign up to more than one if you want to get, you know, best price or, or best execution, right? So that's five different places that you've had to hand over all of your sensitive information to, okay? And that means that there are five different organizations with five different ways to manage security, okay? Five different ways to manage their compliance, five different levels of, you know, executives who have access to that information, or maybe junior people who have access to that information. Okay. So, you know, that, that also is kind of a big problem. And I, we are absolutely confident that a structure like this can undeniably solve, solve that problem. And that's something that that's clearly we've, we've given a lot of thought to a lot of thought to, especially given, you know, candidly, my background in, in financial services and market infrastructure.
1: Now, your white paper contains something unexpected. And personally, I thought it was very interesting. I, I hadn't seen it anywhere else. This is the idea of a, uh, a cryptocurrency clearinghouse. This would be underwritten by um, a guarantee fund, which would be an income yielding guarantee fund that would belong to the users uh, and consumers could, could novate their counterparty risk to it. Otherwise, other words, it's like a central counterparty clearinghouse, uh, but in this uh, data sovereignty marketplace which you're you're creating and i i I was puzzled when i first looked at it i thought well ccps get this criticism of being you know centralizers and concentrators of risk what was what what was the thinking that persuaded you that that a clearinghouse had a had a big role to play in your model
0: also outstanding question so first you know um i recognize that there's a problem in the crypto markets that the trades aren't guaranteed cross-ledger okay um and also that institutions aren't coming in. They're, they're not, Let's I mean, just face facts, they're, they're not. And candidly, I know this sounds a little bit, whatever, <clears throat> um, maybe naive, but it's not, it's, it's very well founded. The reason why they're not, you can give like a thousand reasons, but the core reason in my view and it's not anecdotal, I've done a lot of research on this, is because candidly the trades are not guaranteed, okay? Money, and I've been told this over and over and over again, all right? Money managers are not uncomfortable with volatile markets, right? That's what they do for a living, right? They manage money for their clients. If, the, if every market was predictable, a money manager wouldn't have a job, all right? So they are not only not uncomfortable with it, that's how they make their living, okay? So clearly it's not the volatility of the markets that, that bothers money managers. But no trade guarantees they cannot and will not abide, okay? Because who's on the hook? Who's on the hook? it's a disaster waiting to happen right so I, i'll give you an uh, oh, okay i'll tell this little story I, i've got a i've got a friend i've known for probably close to 20 years now she runs um the institutional uh sales side of a of a big institution that's got a crypto arm okay and that crypto arm does things like you know custody and, and execution and and uh and, and prime brokerage um, you know, she said to me that, you know, she's on the phone all day, every day with institutions, including people from the other arm of her shop. And she said to me, look, you know, every time I speak to these guys, every second question is, is there any insurance? Are the trades guaranteed? And if the trades aren't guaranteed, they say, well, come back to me when they are. All right. So this, this is a, this is a real issue to get uh, to, to really expand uh, you know, expand the, the user community of cryptocurrency, which is a real issue for the technology. Okay, if we want this technology to sustain itself and to advance itself, you need to have thriving cryptocurrency markets, which means you need to have some market infrastructure to provide, you know, stability. So that that's number one, I, I definitely saw when I started to talk about what, what I'm doing with friends and colleagues, I mean, that came, that was just like a lot of incoming about that. Um, And it also turns out that the layer one blockchain that we are developing, the decentralized layer one blockchain is perfectly suited to solve the problem. It's an atomic record keeper, which is effectively most of what a clearinghouse is and does, right? Or at least certainly a massive component of what it does. So to answer the question directly, there are really three reasons. One, building a blockchain database that's perfectly suited to it. Two, and this is really important and this was really sort of the selling point in my own mind for myself, uh, pardon, uh, apologize to get, uh, getting a little schizophrenic, but um, it provides a, another use case for the core blockchain, for that core economy, that's completely different from a social network. The whole, almost the whole point is to make it so widely different, so orthogonal to a social network. So now you got two initial proofs of concept that can Prove the universality of a blockchain. If you've got a clearinghouse and a social net construct that's using the damn thing, you can pretty much assume that anything is going to be able to use on top of it. And then, lastly, you know, I've got candidly personal expertise and background in the space, and access to other people with expertise and background who, who want to do it. Like, you know, I, I believe you've spoken to Gary Chang, who's who's from J.P. Morgan, who's an advisor uh, on the clearinghouse side. So you know, if you think about it in those terms, it's kind of a no-brainer.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob, Rob, one last question for you. It's a rather a greedy one, really, because you've been very clear in outlining what what your your vision is, and it's a it's a grand vision and it's an
0: ambitious one. But what are the what are the limits to this? What are it's the an achievable are one, though. It's an achievable one. It's very important. Yeah. Everyone says that it's ambitious, and it is, but it's also achievable. Okay
1: what are the limits to it? What are the limits to data sovereignty? What's the economy that, that we're gonna live in and when we, when we all enjoy, just imagine we get there, you've achieved it, yep. we're all enjoying data sovereignty. What's that economy actually gonna look like? Do you
0: think? Well, that's a good question. So, so I think that we, first of all, we need to get accustomed to the idea that, that the way that we exist today within the current economic structure of the internet is going to change, okay? You know, the internet is, is, is still embryonic. It's not that old. And the state of doing things is just going to change because it's going to have to, the data capture model just doesn't work. It just doesn't, I mean, it works for the companies, right? But it doesn't work for society and it doesn't work for humanity. So it has to change, okay? Uh, The only thing uh, constant in life is change, okay? So I think what you're going to see is again, a new sort of internet economy where people are going to have an opportunity to monetize their daily lives, right? Imagine if all of us had homes that sat on top of oil, <laughs> okay? So, so you'll have this little sort of, you know, Derek <laughs> that, that can produce hmm. oil, oil for you on a daily basis. I mean, that's, that's the best sort of, you know, that's the best I can kind of come up with. Uh, and moreover, just control the information that belongs to you so that you're, it's not manipulated by other people. Those two alone are going to be massive shifts, massive economic shifts right? I think it's estimated somewhere between seven and the, 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 the data market is, or, or, or data is valued at somewhere between seven and 13 trillion dollars. It's a lot of cake. Mm-hmm. And if only like two or three guys have it versus the rest of humanity, it's a big shift.
1: Well, Rob Rosenthal, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating
0: discussion. Thank you very much for having me. It's been, a, it's been great. Mm-hmm.